One of the most complex priorities that any leader or organization faces is how to attract and engage a genuinely inclusive workforce. On this episode, a conversation with a leader at Deloitte who's got advice for us on how to make real inclusion a reality. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 307. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. I'm so glad you joined in for our conversation today. If it's your first time listening, welcome. If you've listened before, you undoubtedly have heard us talk on the show about the importance of building relationships, about the importance of diversity, about the importance of inclusion. And yet inclusion is something that while we all talk about and we all wish for is something that a lot of our organizations don't necessarily know where to begin and where to start as far as not only the conversation, but even the formal expectations and programs and um, and dialogue to have within an organization in order to make inclusion a reality. And as of course, with every topic, things are changing and around inclusion, they are as well too. And I'm really glad today to welcome a guest whose organization is really at the forefront of thinking about inclusion and how to have a conversation in a way that is not only going to benefit their employees and their firm, but really benefit all the organizations that they work with. I'm really glad to welcome Deepa Pershathaman to the show today. She is a National Managing Principal of Inclusion at Deloitte. In this role, she focuses on acquiring diverse talent and develop strategies to help them stay, belong, and succeed at Deloitte. Deepa is also responsible for Deloitte's inclusion research and brand and Deloitte's external gender equity platform. She speaks extensively about Deloitte's focus on women and has been featured at national conferences and in publications like Bloomberg and the Harvard Business Review. Deepa, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to speak with you. Well, I am as well, too. And uh, there's so many neat things that as I've been looking into your background and researching what Deloitte's been up to, uh, that you've done as an organization that are really neat. And I can't wait to get into more of that. And um, I, But I was curious about a little more about your journey uh, at the beginning here. You are Deloitte Consulting's first female principal of Indian descent in the U.S. And early in your career, I understand that your mindset was focused on being known for what you did rather than who or what you were. And I'm guessing from researching your bio a bit and watching some of the conversations you've had in the past that uh, that's evolved somewhat. How has your view changed? Yeah, it has evolved. It's evolved because I think when I was younger, I really had a chip on my shoulder about being known for, I would say, what I was versus what I did. And although I still want to be known for what I do, I also, I think as I've gotten more seasoned and appreciate some of the challenges that do exist in corporate America, I'm much more appreciative and understanding of of what I represent as well. So what that means is as I walk into a room, whether or not I want to admit it, people don't always see a partner first. They see an Indian woman. And that doesn't have to mean something, but for me to understand that people come with impressions, they may come with biases, they may come with a point of view around that, has really been an evolution for me. And, and I'll give you a small story. When I first you know, became partner and I walked into a, an executive's office for the first time, I remember him saying to me, if I had a daughter, she would be older than you. What could you possibly have to say to me? 
And I remember taking a deep breath and really trying to find some gumption to say something challenging or come back with a response to this client. It ended up being one of the best clients I've had in my career. And we built a great relationship because I realized in that moment, I had to be honest and direct and tell them what other people were afraid of saying. But it, from in this example, it's a really great uh, perspective on the fact that even though I walked in thinking I'm a Deloitte partner and he's going to sit down and listen to me, I had to really disarm him and get him to appreciate that it wasn't who I was. It's actually what I did that was important. Do you remember what it was that you said or did in that first interaction that set the stage for a relationship that grew? I was just honest. So he had a reputation for not always listening to consultants and for being a very big and brash personality. And he was known for swearing. He was known for being a little difficult. And so when he said that to me, instead of cowering, I took a deep breath and I said, give me 15 minutes. And in 15 minutes, if I don't tell you something you don't know, I'll give you the rest of your hour back. And we spent probably 90 minutes to two hours that first meeting. And what I found was because he was so vocal, if I can call it that, or, or loud, or, you know, maybe a little bit rough around the edges, people didn't give him bad news. People didn't tell him what wasn't working. And I think that that lesson was so important for him, but also for me in the sense of um, being honest with people, being honest with executives, having difficult conversations, uh, really disarming people became a leadership style for me, became how I approach all of my work. And it really helped us develop a really strong relationship because he started to trust me as an, as an advisor and someone who was going to be honest with him, even if, you know, sometimes the, the response I got back wasn't always pleasant. You're quoted on the Deloitte website as saying, I struggled to find my path and my leadership style. What was your struggle? I think my struggle was being that first Indian female partner in consulting. I had looked around, looked up, and wanted to find an example that looked exactly like me. Um, what can I emulate? What can I model? Because I don't know what that even means in my own head. Uh, most of the women in my family had not worked outside of the home. And so I just didn't have an example of what that looked like. And the examples I saw around me didn't really resonate with me, not in a, in a bad way, but I just didn't see someone who I really wanted to 100% emulate. And so for me, the, the process was realizing that there isn't one example. I don't need to find an Indian woman who's had my life experiences to, to be that sort of leader, that I could pick and choose from the leaders around me, many of them senior white men, and just kind of pick and choose the styles that, that um, really resonated, that I liked, and develop a style of my own. I also realized that things like sales that didn't come naturally to me weren't going to be done in a traditional way as I saw them before. So let me give you an example. Most of the male partners I work with wined and dined our clients over dinner or over drinks or over sporting events. And I wasn't super excited about, you know, drinking events or maybe even going to sporting events. Yeah. And it wasn't all of how they sold, but that was kind of how sometimes business got done. And what I realized what worked better for me was taking someone to breakfast, inviting a whole family, like doing a family event so that I got to interact with someone's family and really build a different type of personal relationship and then book, build a business relationship off of that. So it, it wasn't significantly different, but it was just shifting small things to realize I didn't have to do it the way it was done or that I had seen, that there was a different way of doing it that was authentic to who, who I am and what I value and how I see the world. What I hear you saying there is something that just strikes me as really smart of not necessarily being dismissive of the way other people did things, but taking elements of what 
people did and or you were inspired by and took pieces of that and then made it your own so that you created eventually your own style, your own way of working so that it was uniquely you and genuine. Absolutely. I think um, I'm not one of those people that I think what you're what you write on the website was, you know, part of it for me was I had to figure it out. I didn't come to Deloitte. They didn't come to being a partner and exactly have my voice yet that it's been, it was a process. And it's okay to not maybe know your your 100% leadership style when you're early in your career and that you can try on a few different um, paths or a few different ways of interacting or ways of leading others, ways of giving feedback and see what works for you. But not everyone, you know, steps into the role and knows exactly what to do. And it's okay to try and fail and and figure out what makes more sense. And, And so that's what I really learned over time. Well, trying and failing is actually a great lead into one of the things I really want to ask you about, which is what Deloitte has been doing uh, around inclusion. And this is not something that's new for Deloitte. In fact, you all have been leading the way in many ways in the industry around thinking about inclusion. And I know there's some new things you're doing now, but I, I am curious, how did this all start when Deloitte started really thinking about inclusion in a strategic way? Where did it begin and, and, and how did it grow and how has it changed since then? It started over 25 years ago. We were one of the first firms that placed focus in this area, and it came very top down. So our CEO at the time, Mike Cook, looked around the room, his leadership table, and didn't see a lot of women in the room. And he kind of questioned what's going on. What do we want to do about this? And so it was an executive sort of um, imperative. And so 25 years ago, we started WIN, our women's initiative, and it was focused on attracting, retaining, and advancing women. From there, we you know, developed over the years and realized we also needed to have a focus on diversity. A few years ago, that moved from you know, win, win and diversity to a focus also on inclusion, really changing the dialogue from a diversity to an inclusion perspective. And now we're about to reimagine again, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, but really move away from a cohort perspective to much more of looking at the life cycle and looking at the issues and the culture of Deloitte versus just, you know, here's, a, here's women and here are the issues that affect women. So I, I think what I really want to emphasize there is for Deloitte, this has been a 25-year-plus journey. It really started focused on women, but we appreciate and have identified that we needed to grow that conversation and that inclusion is really about having everyone be part of the dialogue having everyone be authentic. That includes our white men, right? That includes people that you don't sometimes think about when you think about diversity you know, discussions and really starting to see the world um, as it's evolving. And one of the examples I like to focus on is a lot of our um, initial women's programs or win initiatives really focus on the fact that women had dual roles at home. And so how could we really focus on things like well-being and flexibility? And over the last few years, what we're finding, for example, is that a lot of our millennial men are wanting and having the same challenges that our women did, you know, 10 and 15 years ago because their roles at home are changing. Mm. And so I'm giving you a lot there, but I just think as, as the roles at home change, as society evolves, it's also time for companies to really continue to push on how they think about inclusion. I was thinking about that and preparing for our conversation that a lot of the things that we thought of as more concerns for women 10 or 15 years ago are now becoming uh, as much concerns for men and and all kinds of uh, you know all kinds of people at different parts of their career and I, I want to zero back on something you said a, a moment ago you mentioned the word cohort tell me more about that and and what what do you mean by that and what's different today than what maybe you've done in the past 
So this is the, one of the topics that really excites me and where, and where I think we are being bold. Um, and really trying to, um, again, 25 years ago, we started with this women's initiative, and now here we are really trying to push people's thinking on inclusion again. So the cohort idea is that traditional inclusion and diversity programs and discussions talk about what a person is. So what group are you a part of? Are you a woman? I'm, I'm an Indian woman. It's kind of that one sort of silo or one sort of cohort that people belong to, that they talk about, that they have affinity with. And so we even have, you know, business resource groups tied to each of those topics. What we found over the last 24 months is that many of our staff, although they appreciated things like our WIN program, they were having a challenge because they didn't see themselves as one-dimensional. They saw themselves through multiple identities. So let me take myself. Do I, you know, when, when there's an event that's for women or there's an event for our South Asian BRG, which one do I go to? Do I even I want to identify by that sort of lens? And so it almost harkens back to the first questions you asked me and how I saw myself and some of the challenge I had when I was more junior in my role. And so what we are doing at Deloitte is moving away from that sort of cohort focus. So I have evolved from our win leader to um, focusing on acquisition of diverse talent, of, of experienced hire women, and we're going to have someone else focused on advancement. And so we're moving from a traditional structure of let's have someone focus on women, let's have someone focused on diversity, to a structure that really focuses on culture and the talent life cycle. And so in our culture conversations, rather than just focusing on the numbers, just focusing on how many women are at the top, how many leaders are diverse, we really want to have discussions that start to talk about the culture change that needs to happen. And we came up in those conversations with six areas that we found people really cared about. They wanted a better sense of community, and that was important for inclusion. Purpose. They wanted to focus on their strengths. Courage, which is a huge topic for us. How do you have more courage at work? And well-being. And those things are what we're calling our tenants for inclusion and how we change our culture. And so it's really, to me, the next phase of inclusion. It's moving away from that traditional, you know, here's a box or a bucket that someone fits into. What are the things a company needs to have? What is the culture a company needs to have to really support everyone feeling a part of themselves, part of the organization, feeling um, they can bring their authentic selves to work? And really feeling the sense of where, where I like to talk about it, that they connect with the organization, that they feel they belong at the organization, and that they can grow and succeed at the organization. And that's ultimately what we found our people want. One of the statistics I saw is that I believe almost 70% of the U.S. workforce for Deloitte is millennials. And so you're learning a lot from younger voices that are coming into the organization. What are people saying to you over the last few years, um, as you've been thinking a lot about this and researching within the organization that you're hearing that's different than maybe it was five or 10 years ago? It's one of the things that we're hearing, and this is actually some external research we did. So it's not just solely based on Deloitte. It's actually external. What we found is that this next generation, actually all, all of the folks that did our survey, but a good chunk of the, the millennial group especially, really the focus is not just on the numbers anymore. So we asked we ask questions about what's important to you in the inclusion space. Um, why would you leave a company? Why would you stay with a company? And the, some of the parts that were most interesting and I was surprised about is this idea that seeing uh, a diverse 
leadership team, although important, wasn't the most important. What people really cared about was feeling like they belonged, was feeling like they could be themselves. And it's a really important thought because that sense of feeling is very individual. It's very up to the person. And so you can't just put programs in place. You can't just dictate what inclusion looks like anymore. I think what we're seeing and what we're finding from the research is that individuals need to feel that sense of belong and feeling that sense of connection. And that can be hard because it doesn't happen unless you have the difficult conversations. It doesn't happen unless you ask the question. You can't just prescribe what inclusion looks like anymore. And that's what we're seeing from our own people, but that's what also the research is showing us. As you're speaking, I'm just thinking how challenging this really is to do that well and to do that genuinely and to go back to what you mentioned a, a bit ago which is the research or the resource groups the brgs that I, I my sense is there's a lot of organizations that do that and certainly my experience is having heard a lot of organizations that have the resource groups and it optically it seems like a lot's happening because there's a group, there's a meeting, there's an event, there's uh, and it has a name uh, attached to it, and certain people show up to that who identify with that group. And the things that you're talking about, as far as creating community and purpose, that's a lot harder to quantify. It's a lot harder to look at externally and to say, okay, we've we've made change and that's and and we're getting better and people are feeling this. So I'm curious, how does that how does that show up as far as dialogue and activities and events and how does that actually come together? I think the way that it comes together most clearly, again, is in the research that we did. What we found is that people thought inclusion really mattered in the moments where they were interacting with their direct managers and also what they saw from their leaders. So what it means is that Leaders matter, but a lot of where people feel inclusion or don't feel inclusion is on their teams, is in their interactions with their direct managers. And so every interaction matters. And so asking what people want, having a lunch and saying, what's working for you? What's not working for you? Um, Doing more periodic check-ins, right, as part of the review process rather than once or twice a year, which is very traditional. We've moved more to a model of check-ins where we're asking people to have more informal conversations more frequently, both from a how am I doing perspective, but also because it opens the door to have these types of conversations that are sometimes more difficult, allows, I think, uh, just things to come up, to to clear the air, to um, engage in dialogue that doesn't always happen naturally, not because it's not important, but because sometimes people don't know where to start. And so I think my biggest lesson or my biggest suggestion is people need to just ask questions. People just need to start the dialogue. And sometimes in the inclusion space, it's very dictated, right, by um, HR policies or, you know, don't ask specific questions. I think we're in the day and age where the research is showing you need to ask some questions to understand how people feel because what you're probably putting upon people is maybe not how they see themselves. I know you've done a lot of research internally, and I know you've also looked at some of the external research. When you look out there and look at the research, and also if you, when you look at the firms that Deloitte serves and you're learning from your clients, what are the kinds of things that are bubbling up that are, have had you thinking differently about how you approach this in the last few years? Just one of the, the biggest facts that jumped out at me was we actually found from the research that, the, that our um, millennials in the research actually said that they had left companies, not that they were just thinking about 30% of millennials had actually stated they left a company for a more inclusive culture. 
And that is huge because what we're finding, and I'm even seeing in my day-to-day interactions, is that inclusion is becoming part of a talent discussion in a much more central sort of way. So it's not inclusion for inclusion's sake, or it's not inclusion because we need to improve the numbers. It's inclusion because there is a race for talent for everyone, right? We're all trying to get the best and the brightest and keep, especially our millennials who like to explore different opportunities more, you know, more quickly than maybe my generation. And so what, what, what we're seeing here and what we're hearing here is that inclusion is so critical to the talent discussion of how you get people and how you get them to stay that it really makes it central and really important in a much more, I think, different way than it's been in years past. When you talk with managers who are doing more, having more of these discussions and doing those regular check-ins now, and who have been successful at really creating an environment in their teams that honors inclusivity, what do you find that they've done in their actions that's been really successful that maybe you don't see in other firms or other organizations? I think in the stories and the examples I see myself, it's when it becomes part of the daily culture. So it's not a, um, here's an inclusion event, you know, here's a, you know, by uh, twice a year sort of check-in, you know, or end of year sort of review and let's have a conversation where it becomes part of what happens. So people feel comfortable saying this works for me and this doesn't in a very normal course of business. I think, you know, what really works is creating a culture where people can say, um, what you just said, you know, here's how I heard it. And that didn't really work for me. And here's why. And the person who said it can say, well, I didn't mean that. Or here's what I was thinking. And that dialogue can happen real time. I can share with you that what I hear from a lot of the, you know, the the, um, staff I speak with or the clients I work with is that people walk around with a lot of, did someone just say that or feeling of microaggressions? And I think sometimes it really just requires having a discussion in the moment to understand what people meant and how people heard it to change behaviors and make everyone feel like they belong and feel included. I have an example where I just recently had lunch with a client and he's African-American and he shared with me over lunch. um, It's sometimes hard Deepa, because, you know, sometimes people don't even know whether to address me as African-American or as black. And if they don't even know how to address me, how can we even have a conversation about race or belonging? And it was a really simple statement he made, and it turned into a two-hour lunch because it was actually really profound. If, if we're so uncomfortable to even know how to address someone or ask a question like that, and, and his point was just ask me, what do, you want, what do I want to be called? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really, it's really uh, we're all so, I guess, PC or sometimes worried about saying the wrong thing. I think we have to create a culture where it's okay to have these types of dialogues. Yeah, and I, I, as you were saying that, I can, I can think of myself having wondered that in some situations and with certain individuals I've worked with. And I, I wonder, is there something you found? Um, and and, and I'm, I may be asking a question that's not answerable. And if and if I am, tell me. But I wonder that 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 seems like such an obvious thing for all of us to do, and yet in so many of our relationships, we hesitate. We we're afraid most of us, of, of having that kind of conversation. How do you, what do you find is getting people beyond some of that fear? Because I'm guessing people have fear over that, but they're doing something that is getting them beyond the fear. Um, what, what is it that's happening that's getting them to move beyond the fear? I think some of it is just our teams are changing and our talent is changing. 
I think, you know, for us, what we find is, you know, as, as we have more millennials on our teams, they ask much, many more bold questions. And so it's a little bit of what happens naturally as you have multiple generations in the workforce like we do today in a way that we've never had before. It requires us all to think differently. Um, so I think that's one. I think number two, there's a real hunger and a desire for this in a way that I've not seen before because of that talent connection I was talking about before. Mm. People realize that these types of discussions are why people are leaving, right? It's in the news all the time. So I think it's it's really about creating a situation where people feel comfortable and that you create trust and you can only do that by having the discussions. And so I think it's it's really tied to those sorts of topics and it doesn't have to be complicated and it's almost a I just tell my clients just start right start and give yourself permission to not get it right the first time but if you don't have those conversations it's it's hard to change there's also an example that I like to share um, when I work with some sometimes all male executive teams I'll you know I've been on stage a few times with some senior executives and they've shared with me they didn't have that aha moment until they put their daughter in the situation. What I mean by that is they worked alongside, you know, women and worked, you know, had sisters and all of that, but it didn't, they didn't make the connection of how maybe the culture of their company or the culture of where they work had to change until they thought of their daughter coming into the workplace and realized, Hey, I I never thought of it. I don't want my daughter to go through that. I mean, my daughter thinks of, of things differently. And so I think part of it is a little bit of put yourself in other people's shoes, but some of it's also happening naturally as the workforce evolves. So much of what you're saying is lining up with so many of the recent conversations on the show. And I'm, I'm zeroing back to that word you said a little bit ago, courage. The courage we all need to have to engage and to ask and to be willing to maybe zero in on some fear, or be a little bit vulnerable. But if we're willing to do that, uh, more often than not, even if we fall flat on our face once in a while, I think most people are going to be grateful that we at least attempted and we at least tried and we at least opened the door for the conversation. And, and, and there's a lot we can learn from the millennials who are coming in the workplace now, it sounds like. I, I totally agree. I think, my, you know, even for myself, I've learned over the years, you know, when I first started in my career, I had a client, I'll never forget this conversation. He said to me, oh, you'll be here for a few years because you'll get married at some point and you'll, you know, you'll leave the workforce. And in the moment, I obviously didn't agree with him and I have a pretty strong personality but I don't know that I stopped him in that moment and said, hey, like, do you even appreciate what you're saying to me? Did you mean that? Do you, you know, understand what that's about? In hindsight, today, I would have stopped him and said, like, let's grab a cup of coffee and I need you to understand what that did to me or what, how that made me feel and why that to you is a casual comment. But to me, that really had profound effects. And so I think some of it is not only opening the door for others to have conversations and be courageous, but it's for, you know, us ourselves to also be courageous. Oh, indeed. Indeed. And one of the reasons I was really interested in talking with you is uh, we have a few of our academy members who are navigating inclusion within their firm, sometimes around gender, sometimes around other things. And uh, like you, I've seen a lot of firms that have uh, put together the resource groups or they've put together a women's group or an African-American group. And that has certainly satisfied a need in some ways. But I get the sense that it's also in some ways still very lacking. And I, I think about a lot of organizations right now that are doing like engagement events, you know, that there's, a, you know, this quarter's engagement event, like, you know, we don't engage people the rest of the time. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, what do you see as the mistakes being made when you look out there and you look at your client organizations and the industry? Where are the mistakes? You know, I think the mistakes are maybe not knowing exactly where to start. And so as a result, maybe doing nothing. 
so I encourage my clients to really just try again that that sort that same sort of theme of don't be afraid of getting it wrong and it's better to try and and you know focus on on starting the conversations. I also really think that um, I advise clients to really focus on culture as well. I think even when we started, we were probably a little bit more programmatic than what we're realizing we need right now. It is not just about the programs. It's not just about the data we publish about how many women and underrepresented minorities are at the top. I mean, almost everyone is starting to do those things. It's more than the numbers. It's more than the programs and, and things like, you know, the BRGs you're mentioning or or just the tactical items. There is a real sense that some of the harder things, some of the things that are intangible and that people really define as inclusion and, and makes them feel like they belong. And that, that, that word to me is probably the most important word, that sense of belonging is really harder and it's part of the culture. And it's almost, you can't wait to address it later. We're in a time and age where we need to address them all now together. And it's harder, like you said in the beginning, it's harder to identify, but you need to do both at the same time if you want to have true success. Is there something you've seen that's worked for, um, like you were saying, you know, approaching it from a standpoint of, yeah, I may make mistakes, but I'm going to start. I'm going to start to do something. Um, Is there a first step that you found that's worked well for organizations or for individuals when they've just started off, even if not the right step, but at least to get the process starting to start having dialogue about this and start thinking about how to change culture? Yeah, one of the things I say, you know, we get calls a lot to, you know, how do I stand up a women's focused, you know, organization to how do I start in the diversity space or what programs have you done that we should replicate? And one of the first things I say is I think why we were so successful at Deloitte is it was a CEO mandated Um, not a side project. And so when I say I was in charge of the women's initiative, it's not a traditional um, BRG or, you know, grassroots organization. It had funding. It reports into the board. I mean, it has real visibility. And so I think if you're truly going to make change, yes, for many of, you know, staff level, it it does matter most how you interact with your managers, but I think that tone at the top and making sure there's buy-in and that leaders come to events, that leaders say the right things, that leaders, you know, set the tone when they engage with their teams, that can make all the difference in the world. And if that's, if there's only one thing I tell clients, it's that, that you need that leadership early stage because it can make the difference between this taking, you know, years versus this really becoming one of the top five things that a company focuses on. So getting that executive buy-in from the beginning or the top person is uh, is really key for making change and so many things, not just on inclusion in the organization. Sounds like exactly. good advice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What are you seeing right now, maybe in the research, but just perhaps in your own business experience too and in Deloitte's experience around the business case for this? Because so often we we think about the the moral and the ethical reasons for doing this, but there is also a business case here too. There is, and it ties back to the the race for talent, right? I mean, this matters. The data suggested people are, you know, choosing companies, they're staying at companies, and they're in fact leaving companies as a result of whether or not they feel that it has an inclusive culture. So the business case alone on just the the expense it costs to, you know, hire and train a new person, I think speaks for itself. I, I think where we've tried to move the conversation is past the business case again, like I've said to the culture, but I'd also say to you some of what we're trying to do in the fall is I'm being asked wherever I speak the, the million dollar question of, so can you find a way to prove that you know, workers are more productive if they feel included? And so those are some of the themes that we're really trying to delve into in the research that comes out in the fall. 
And what's next for you and for the work you're doing and what's most important going forward that, uh, that, that we should all know about, not only what Deloitte's doing, but that we can potentially be inspired by our own organizations too? You know, I, I'm, like I said, so excited by the changes we're making. We just announced them less than two weeks ago. And so we have some, you know, months of work in front of us to really talk about the practical change that has to happen as we move away from that cohort model. Um, I think it is very bold, but the message to our teams also needs to be they're not going to lose anything. So just because we're moving away from the traditional lens of win doesn't mean we're not going to focus on our women. So that's what we're going to do internally is really um, show people what it means to start to tackle things like culture and um, how that really can bring more people into the discussion. I think what I talk about externally in my advice is we need to bring more people into the inclusion discussion so that everyone feels like it's their um, problem, their opportunity, that they're in the boat with all of us. It is not, you know, we cannot set the white men aside and have this discussion without them. Um, I've had some conversations with senior white men who have, you know, in companies who have starting to feel, you know, where, what does this mean for me? And so I think to make true change and to get us to the next level, we need to really make the dialogue about inclusion is about everyone belonging, everyone being included. And what does that really mean? And how do you really do that? And how do we get our senior white men to be part of that dialogue in a very active and day-to-day sort of basis? Well, you've mentioned the word dialogue a bunch, and I know that's something that's also really important to you. And one of our takeaways I know from the conversation and actions for folks who want to is connecting with you personally. Um, And I know that you're working actively to build a dialogue on Twitter uh, as a way to start to engage with different uh, folks and different organizations and thinking about this actively. So I was wondering if you could say more about that if for folks who would like to take you up on that challenge of having the courage to begin a dialogue of what's the best way for them to do that. I would love that. So I am active on Twitter at Deepa, D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U. And I really um, encourage people to reach out and ask their questions and let's, let's start that dialogue. Let's continue that dialogue. Um, people can also go to the Deloitte website, Deloitte.com, for overall information on what we're doing. But I am really excited. I think we have we have led in this space for over 25 years. And again, what we're doing is really bold. In some ways, I think it's leapfrogging to where I think you know the next generation is really seeing things in in a very not a one-dimensional sort of way. And so that is really exciting to me. And I would love to speak with people who are struggling with that or looking for more information. I really appreciate you making that available because I think that that is the stopping point a lot of times for many of us when we're thinking about this is just not knowing where to start. And someone like you who not only has uh, walked the talk, but experienced this and has uh, has been very successful at uh, helping an organization to do this better um, as a resource, I think will be fabulous. So thank you so much for making that available. And um, I, I am curious, uh, Deepa, you know, one of the things we talk about on Coaching for Leaders, we talk a lot about failure in addition to success because um, I'm a big believer that uh, sometimes the path forward is is by making mistakes and having the courage to take the wrong step. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us about what's a time that you've had a leadership failure or or a failure in, in the capacity of working on inclusion that you learned from and helped you to become more effective in your work? I have had many failures. I think some of my failures have to do with really focusing on the things I didn't know versus focusing on my strengths. So there is something out there called the imposter syndrome. And when I was a manager, I really loved all that literature because as a, especially as a woman of color, as a woman, I used to focus on the things I didn't know. So I would walk into a room and be really clear about all the things I didn't know. 
Um, I'm not an MBA. I'm not this. I'm not that. And what I learned from the imposters complex literature and writings is that that is something that a lot of women walk around with. And I think we need to teach our women, just like we teach our boys, to focus on the things that you're good at. So at Deloitte, we have something called, you know, focusing on your strengths, speaking to your strengths. And so that has really been a big lesson that I've learned um, after many failures of talking about all the things I didn't know and leading with that, which is a really silly way of, of leading in the business world. And so that, that's probably where I've, I've learned the most or grown the most. Deepa, it's such an important lesson for so many of us. I, uh, I've struggled with the same thing myself in different ways. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate your, your perspective. And thank you for making yourself available to us. I'm, uh, I'm really grateful for it. Thank you. And again, I really look forward to talking with uh, the folks that listen to this if they have more and they can reach me at Deepa, D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U. Thank you so much. Deepa Purshathaman is a National Managing Principal of Inclusion at Deloitte. Thanks, Deepa. Thank you. Thank you, Deepa. And if you, like me, are someone who's often wondering about what you can do as an individual, but also as an organization to get better at thinking and acting genuinely inclusive in the way you work and in who you attract and who you connect with in your organization and customers and suppliers. I'd certainly encourage you to reach out to Deepa with questions, as she mentioned on Twitter. It's a great way to start a dialogue, to learn more, to share resources. And this is a topic that's important to a lot of us. And uh, many of us uh, feel strongly about wanting to get better at this. And yet our actions and behaviors don't always follow our good intentions. And I think this is an important reminder, certainly for me first, and and many of us to continue to do this effectively. So I hope you'll do that. Uh, Of course, if you or someone in your organization is thinking about this actively right now, uh, I'd encourage you to pass this episode along to them, or maybe I have a friend or a colleague who's thinking about uh, launching an initiative to be more inclusive in their organization. Um, I know we have at least uh, one or two people in our academy membership that are thinking about this actively right now within their organizations in some capacity, uh, certainly pass this episode along. I know it'll be helpful to them. And if you have been listening to this show for a bit and you haven't yet signed up for your free membership on the website, I'd really encourage you to do so. You get a whole bunch more when you register for the free membership at coachingforleaders.com. One of the things you'll get is immediate access to my free 10-day audio course, titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. And if you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader, especially if you've been listening to the show just recently. I've featured some of the key lessons that we've aired on the shows in the past five to six years in that 10-day course. It'll get you up to speed on some of the critical areas to begin with. Uh, But that's not all. There's a ton more in the free membership that when you sign up for, you're going to get access to, uh, including the entire podcast library searchable by topic uh, for the entire catalog. You'll also get access to my library of the things I catalog in the weekly leadership guides. You'll begin getting the weekly leadership guides every Wednesday with the show notes and also the resources I found that I think will support your development during the week. Uh, The member cast is on there. There's a whole bunch more that's inside the free membership, completely free. Just sign up at coachingforleaders.com and you'll get access to all of that. 
And I'm really looking forward to meeting a number of you over the next uh, month or so here at some of the upcoming meetups. Uh, This show's airing just before the Denver meetup uh, this coming Monday evening, July 24th, 2017. If you are in the Denver area and you're interested in joining us for our dinner meetup and you haven't yet RSVP'd, now is the time for sure. Coachingforleaders.com slash Denver. If you're in Denver and you're missing this, I hope to catch you on the next time around. But uh, if you have already RSVP'd, I'm looking forward to meeting you. We've got a great group coming. We still have a few spots. Coachingforleaders.com slash Denver is where to go. And if you're in the Orange County area or in Southern California and you'd like to meet me and other local listeners uh, on in August, uh, it is going to be Thursday, August 17th, that evening in Costa Mesa, California. Details are at coachingforleaders.com slash Orange County. I'd love to meet you as well if you're out here or if you just happen to be in Orange County that evening. And my goal with the meetups is I I love meeting uh, all of you one-on-one and making those personal connections. But my real goal is to actually get you connected with other local listeners because the more you build your network locally with other people who care a lot about leadership and are continuing to grow in their leadership development or listen to podcasts like this, I think it's going to be really powerful for you and your network and your career journey. So I look forward to meeting many of you. And we'll do, we'll do more meetups uh, coming up here in the future. In the meantime, though, for everyone, related episodes to today's conversation, a number of other episodes that we have hit on in the past that touch on uh, some of the topics of inclusion that we mentioned today, I'd encourage you to go check out episode 171, How to Handle Workplace Bullying. On that episode, I had a U.S. Army retired Colonel Jill Morgenthaler on, and she talked about her experiences in being a woman at, in the military at a time that there weren't many women leaders, at least not here in the U.S. military. Uh, that has changed uh, a bunch, thankfully, in the last decade or so, although uh, it is still something that is top of mind, of course, for our military leaders here in the States. Uh, Jill talks about her experience of being one of the early female leaders uh, in the army, what that was like, how she handled tough situations. Episode 171 is a great uh, episode to check out for inspiration on how to navigate some of that. On episode 255, how women make stronger, smarter choices. Therese Houston was on the show talking about her most recent book. And although her research is centered around women, there's a lot in that episode we talked about that is valuable for everyone on how to make better choices, how to navigate some of the challenges on thinking and decision processes. I hope you'll check out episode 255 if that's something that is interesting to you. And then I had uh, my friend Terry Lepofsky on episode 275, How to Help the Underdog Thrive. Terry is an executive coach. He's built his career and coaching practice uh, a lot on working with people who are underdogs for whatever reason. Sometimes that's because of racial or ethnic minority uh, situations. Sometimes that's because they think differently than other people in the organization for whatever reason. Sometimes that's because of gender. There's a lot of reasons that sometimes people in the organization uh, show up as underdogs and they don't have access perhaps to the same resources or they don't think or look like other people in the organization. Uh, If that is you or that's someone that you are mentoring or coaching, episode 275 is a must listen for you. All of those episodes can be accessed at coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. And of course, they'll be in the weekly leadership guide this week as well. Next week, I am thrilled to welcome Mike Irwin to the show. Mike is joining us to discuss his new book, Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. We're going to be talking about the importance of leaders taking time to think, to be alone, 
to consider strategy. We've talked about that several times on the show, but we're going to devote an entire conversation to it. Mike has done a ton of research, uh, him and his co-author Ray, on all of the things that leaders have done through history to do this. Join us for that conversation. And also, if you have a question for consideration for one of our upcoming Q&A shows, the first Monday of every month, always love hearing your questions. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the best way to get a question to us on leadership. Look forward to considering it for a future episode. Have a great day, and I look forward to speaking to you again next Monday. Take care.